The Bible reading this morning is taken from Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. And you can find that on page 73 of your pew Bible. It's entitled, Water from the Rock. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Thank you, mates. G'day, everyone. Welcome. My name is Pete, and I'm looking forward to being here with you today. And yes, I uh, did get confused as to whether or not I was going to a jazz club this morning, hence the suit. Please forgive me, you're welcome. Anyway, so today we do continue our journey through Exodus, which is good news, and I think it's uh, kind of ironic. Scotty brought it to us last week, but we're all dealing with our own tsunamis last week in that weather. So if you didn't come to church, that's okay, we forgive you, but please do, as Emily said, check it out on the podcast, definitely worth a listen. Alrighty, well let's pray before we um, come to our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, um, we do love you and we do thank you for this day, a day that you have made and we thank you for your word and uh, that you have revealed yourself to us. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would teach us today about yourself, uh, encourage our hearts and challenge us where necessary. For the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, in a previous life, I worked as an aircraft maintenance engineer at Qantas, and one of my, one of my tasks as, a, as an engineer was to fuel the aeroplanes for, for takeoff. It's pretty important. And so it was up to me to calculate the correct fuel load to put on the plane so that it could actually reach its destination. See, you don't want to have too much fuel. By the time it gets to the other end, it's too heavy, it can't land, and you don't want to have too little because of gravity, I, th- I think we can all guess what happens there. And so you want to have it spot on. But anyway, one day I was sending a plane off to Los Angeles. I, uh, I had a truck out there filling the plane. I tapped it in. It was ready to go. So it's pumping away. I went up and checked with the captain that everything was okay. He was fine. So I went off and got myself a cup of tea. In my absence, the plane, a 747 actually, looked a bit, a bit like this one, a 747 started spewing fuel out all over the tarmac, straight out of the wing. So I hear a call on the radio that there's a plane losing fuel. It's my plane, so I run out to the plane 
And uh, at the same time, I noticed that every other aircraft that's taxiing has stopped. There's nothing landing. There's nothing taking off. The hazmat crew are there, and everybody's looking at me at this point. But what was interesting, what I did notice, other than that, during that ordeal, was watching the passengers' faces at the windows. Because they'd all boarded at this stage, and so they're all at the window, looking out like that, petrified what they can see happening outside. And actually, people tried to get off the plane, but you can't at that point. Really freaked them out. Why? These people have put their whole trust in in this aircraft to get them to their destination, to get them where they're going. And they see this problem outside, and they start doubting whether this plane's ever going to get them there. And I do wonder if it can be the same with us and God. On our journey with him, no doubt we hit multiple problems which can result in us doubting whether he's ever going to get us to our destination at all, our destination in heaven. I think actually these doubts in him can cause us to want to get off the journey altogether. We've kind of got our faces at the windows. I'm, I'm ready to rock and roll, sick of this. Get me out of this Christian life. And so that's, what we, that's where we're going today. That's where we're going today. We're going to have a journey through in Exodus. God can be, um, our lives can be bursting with challenges with God, which cause us to doubt his faithfulness to us, that he's actually going to get us through. So that's where we're going. I'm going to have a look at this by asking a couple of probing questions from the text. So there's three of them. When do we doubt God's faithfulness? Why do we doubt it? And how does God respond? Okay. When do we doubt it? Why do we doubt it? And how does God respond? So that's where we're going. Now, I don't know if you've read it, but if you haven't, you should. John Bunyan's a classic Christian book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And he starts it like this. As I walk through the wilderness of this world. It's a great book. And in the book, he's paralleling the Christian journey with that of the Israelites back in Exodus, with all of its challenges all the way to heaven. A great read. And today, as we come to chapter 17, at this point, Israel have faced a number of challenges already that have caused them to doubt God's faithfulness to them. When I talk about God's faithfulness to them, it's his faithfulness to his promise that he made to them. That promise being that uh, I'm going to save my people and I'm going to take them to the promised land. And it's exactly the same for us. Those promises still stand that he's taking us to the promised land in heaven. And we too face challenges which can cause us to doubt God's faithfulness to that. So let's use the text to guide us. If you've got uh, your Bibles, please open them up. If you've got an old Hebrew scroll, then roll it on out. We're going to be working through. When might we doubt it? Why do we doubt it? And how does God respond? All right, let's go. God's faithfulness. When do we doubt it? We doubt it, I think, during times of uncertainty. When we are presented with a situation in life that causes discontentment uh, in us. Have a look at the first couple of verses here. The whole Israelite community set out of the desert of sin. Now that could be anywhere between two to five million people at that stage. The Israelites loved having babies, so we don't really know. But the idea is, think about the whole of Sydney pushing across the Nullarbor. That's kind of the picture we're getting here. So these guys are travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camp at Repidim, but... Now here's their situation in life. Here's their trial being introduced to us. But there was no water for the people to drink. And so, and here's their response to that situation, they quarrel. 
They quarreled with God or protested angrily. Give us water and give it to us now. Here we have God's people confronted in the midst of their journey with a, with a problem, a situation springing about discontentment with God. And if you have a look at verse 1, it's pretty easy to see why. It's because the Lord commanded them that they be there in the first place. And so they're looking at him thinking, are you serious? What are you doing? My uh, wonderful mother was a preschool teacher and uh, when she had my younger sister, she had to give that away and she became a daycare mother. And so most of my young life, right up until I left home, I spent my, my days surrounded by kids, not only my brothers and sisters, five of us, but five kids of somebody else's. And so I was surrounded by families and children and uh, that had an effect on me. And I remember being asked at primary school, as I'm sure all of us were at some point, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer to that question was always the same. It's always the same. I want to get married and I want to be a dad. I want to have babies. That's what I want. That's it. And so I'm 35 now and praise God I do have a beautiful wife who you know and I love but, and here's my situation in life, our great God hasn't blessed us with a child, and we've been trying. And so, and here's my response to that, I've spent many days grumbling with him, quarrelling, protesting angrily. Are you serious? What's happening here? What are you doing? And I think it's similar to what the Israelites are doing in Exodus. They reach this place in life, but there's no water. And so they grumble and they quarrel with God because they don't have what they want. I think it could be the same for us. Maybe, maybe you can relate, throw out a few things. Maybe you've reached a place in your life, a place of uncertainty. Let's say that you have been a person of influence in your life and maybe you've had a good job good cash, good business prospect, a good business at some point, and then one day, it all changes. Things change, people retire, people lose their jobs, and then all of a sudden, you're no longer that person of influence. Your business is a mess, you're struggling to keep your house. And I do wonder, does that place of uncertainty make you grumble against God? How do you respond to that? Do you even care about me anymore? Why have you taken away my significance? Maybe you have um, reached a point in life, and I think we've all been there, where you have absolutely no idea what the future holds for you. Maybe you're 20, 30, 40, 50, and you're still single. You can't understand it. Maybe you're married with a baby on the way, or you've got a baby, and you're thinking, how on earth am I ever going to be independent of mum and dad? These situations are difficult. There's no doubt about that. But I think the question that this text makes us ask is how do we respond to that, that situation in life? Do we grumble against God just like the Israelites did when they reached this point of struggle in their lives? But have a look, it's interesting how Moses responds to their quarrelling in verse 2. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? In the Hebrew, that test can be translated as prove as well. So it gives the sense that why do you make the Lord prove himself to you? And it's, 
It's rhetorical. Moses is thinking, really? You want God to prove himself faithful? Don't you remember just a little while ago when we were standing by that sea, we had the army coming down on us, and then God just peeled away the waters? Remember he was faithful there? Remember that? Do you remember back in Egypt, that time when God said through Moses that, hey, I'm going to set you guys free, and then all of a sudden Pharaoh got pretty upset about that, and he started oppressing them. It got pretty, pretty nasty with all the bricks and straw. That whole episode, they were oppressed. But then God intervened and did exactly what he said, and he'd save us. Remember that? I think the point being made here is that we can have pretty short memories of God's faithfulness. It's, easily, it's easy to get caught up in the here and now, what we see in front of us, rather than thinking about how faithful he's been to us in the past. But I think that we're pretty good at justifying where we're at. Have a look at verse 3. But the people were thirsty there, and so they grumbled. In other words, what have you done for me lately? You know, we're hungry now. We're thirsty now. Give us water, then we'll be content. And I think, I think it's very much like putting God's faithfulness on probation, doing that daily, pending further evidence. And I think this reveals something quite profoundly wicked about the human heart, actually. And that is that we want life on our own terms. We can struggle with being content with, God, with where God has us at some point in time. I want this and I want it now. I want it on my terms, in my timing, give it to me. I think it's a little bit like treating God as though he were a divine vending machine. It's almost like our calls are a bit like the coins that we pop in there. They become akin to the same thing in that we just put it in, give us what we want when we want it. I don't know if you've seen on YouTube at the moment, there's a pretty funny video going around about a guy sitting there with his mates and they're having a few beers and they run out. And so he goes to the top of his roof and jumps on his radio and calls his other friend and says, we need beer. And so his friend jumps and he brings out a drone and on the bottom of the drone's hanging a beer can and he drives it across the city all the way and then drops it into his hand. Whenever he calls for it. And I think we can treat God the same way. God, I want you to sort this situation out now. It's not happening. We're shaking our fists at him. Are you for us or not? If you are, then give us what we want. So I think when we face uncertainty in life, it can lead us to doubt God's faithfulness. So I think that's the when. But what I want us to do now is investigate the why. Why do we doubt it? And I think, I think it's because during these uncertain times, we can feel alone. I think we feel like God's just abandoned us. Verse 3, this is what the people say. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? In other words, if you were here, God, you would do something about this. But as it stands, it feels like we've been plucked up out of Egypt, placed into this life of chaos, and you're not protecting us because you're gone. You're not even here. It's like you've abandoned us. In verse 7, they say again, is the Lord among us or not? Where are you? If you watched the news last week or even picked up the paper, you would have seen that story about that seven-year-old boy in Japan who, um, who was taken out into the forest and left by his dad for being disobedient. Now, that little boy, seven years old, he wandered in the forest. He had no shelter. He had no food. 
He had no water and he did it for days on his own. But the thing that scared that little boy the most was being abandoned. And I quote, read this yesterday, because he was afraid of the forest and wandering about by himself in the dark. End quote. I think that when the uncertainties of life hit us, we can feel like that little boy. Like God's just abandoned us. Left to wander the wilderness of life with all its adversities, without him all alone. I think it's fair to say that a lot of you guys have been Christians for a long time. Some of you have uh, more than likely asked this question a number of times. God, where are you? Some of you are covered in the scars of Christian life. Does our walk get any easier? I'm not sure it does. But we do learn, I think. We do learn to build our Christian muscles as we go through these adversities. We see God's faithfulness over and over and over. So we learn, we mature. But just think for a second. What about new Christians? What about those guys who have just come out of Egypt, as it were? Those who don't really know God yet. They haven't really experienced his faithfulness. They don't really have much to lean on. Now, the devil hammers these guys. I mean, we've got 15 of them up in Seoul right now. When adversity hits them, and it will, will they have the spiritual muscle to be able to stand on God's faithfulness at that time? A God that they're really just coming to know? I think that's a tough question. And so the challenge for us, those of you who are a bit more mature in your faith, it's to look out for these guys because they need you. And that's why in Christian community, it's so important that we have family in a community. This, this uh, text starts off that the whole of the Israelite community set out together. They're not doing life on their own. They're doing it as a group, as a family. We're together. We're saved into a family and so we help each other. So I encourage you to look out for these guys. Be praying for them loving them, seeking them out, encouraging them into small groups, encouraging them to come to church. If we need each other. And now, it's worth saying that in making this point, I'm not diminishing the fact that we all have trials, because we do. I just mention it so that we can get some perspective that we're all at different points in our journey and that we all need help. There's something else that I want us to notice in the text here. It's there, it's a bit more hidden, but it's there when the Israelites doubt God's presence and protection. It's interesting what they're doing. They're looking back to Egypt. They're thinking, I was better off there. I was better off before you saved me. And it's actually articulated in a chapter earlier. This is what they say. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. We were better off there. It's interesting, hey? It's interesting that in so many movies that we pick up and watch these days, we have people and dramas, they're navigating the dramas of life. And when they hit this point of breakdown, we often see the guy or the girl, this scene where they go into the bar and they start knocking back 15 schooners, 14 martinis. Why is that? Because that's where they're going to seek refuge when they feel like God's abandoned them there. Discontentment in God's faithfulness to us, brought on by some situation in life, can see us backsliding into Egypt. 
back into our old ways, seeking refuge there in their gods. So what might that look like today? Well, as we've mentioned, seeking refuge in alcohol, I think, is a, it's prevalent in our society. Instead of working through the problem, trusting God in it, we can run from it and from him and turn back into sin and into a God that we can control, a God that we can manipulate. And that's what it is. I think it's a question of control. If my life feels like it's out of control here, then I'm taking back the wheel, even if it takes me there. Sadly, today, in our sexualised culture, so prevalent is our guy seeking refuge in pornography. Stressed out at work, at uni, wife and I having problems, things aren't great there. So I'm taking back control. I'm taking back control, I'm going to seek solace somewhere else other than God. I'm, I'm going to do that in order to make myself happy, meet my needs there, God doesn't seem to be helping me here and what I desire, so I'm going back there where I can control it. I'm sliding back into Egypt where I feel safe. I think that's the danger. When we doubt God's faithfulness to us during situations in life, when our hearts become discontented, we can feel like God is absent or doesn't care. And a discontented heart will seek refuge in anything or anyone in order to take back control rather than leaving it in God's hands. Because we can't control him. And I think that's the epitome of sin right there. Adam did it in the garden, wants the apple, takes it, taking back control. So how does God respond here to this, to Israel's doubts, their sinful grumbling and ours? God responds by giving. He gives. Israel are in the trenches of life, bullets flying by, they're trudging through the mud of life. God has promised them that he'll get them to the promised land where they'll be safe. It doesn't seem to be happening. They're grumbling in their doubt, shaking their fists at him. What are you doing? How does he respond? He gives. He gives them what they need. Have a look at verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff, that's God's presence, being pictured there, with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out for the people to drink. God gives them the water they need. And to be honest, I think it's a little bit understandable that they are asking it for in the first place, because without it, you die. And God doesn't want them to die. He loves them. And so my question as I was reading this is, why the drama then? Why not just take them into Israel into a place with water, just bypass all this, this drama, where is it, I haven't got it, avoid the uncertainty and anxiety, why? The answer is because God wants his people to trust him. He wants his people to be able to trust him each and every day. He wants us to be able to go to bed at night with a full stomach, knowing there's nothing in the cupboard for tomorrow. That's what he wants. So that when we wake up in the morning, we rely on him for everything. It may not be what you want, but the Lord provides what you need, as he did for Israel. And what I love about this is that 
with the whole manna stuff, that God doesn't just leave a bunch of frozen dinners in the fridge, in the freezer, and say, there you go, champ, that'll sort you out for 10 years, off you go. It doesn't work like that. He's intimate. He wants relationship, and he wants to cultivate trust in his people day after day after day for it to continue to be renewed each day. And so why don't you, next time you go to the tap, pour it out, why don't you thank God for providing that water for you each and every day? Because I think it's very easy now, today, when we live in such abundance uh, to just miss these little miracles. But notice too where the water comes from. It comes from a rock. The most unlikely of places he gives them water. I think the point there is that there is no situation in life that is too removed from the grace of God. He can intervene in the most trialing circumstances. It doesn't matter. He can turn things around in an instant. He can show up and it's done. Nothing's too hard for him. God gives the Israelites water because without it, they die. But it's important to note that water only sustains our body for a period of time. And we do eventually die. And so there's a greater need here. And it's the need for spiritual water so that God's people may live forever. And that's why God gives himself. That's why he gives himself in the Lord Jesus. Jesus gives us the spiritual nourishment that we need for eternal life. And I'll tell you how. Israel, they doubt God. They doubted that he would ever get them to the promised land and so they take life into their own hands, demand water, give it to me, give it to me now. They want control. The contrast with Christ, who had a similar wilderness experience, 40 days, 40 nights, they were in there for 40 years. The parallels aren't coincidental. But Christ does something different. Did he get hungry and thirsty? Of course. Would he have died without it? You bet. But does he ever take life into his own hands? Never. I mean, for a man who can calm a storm, can heal sickness, I'm pretty sure he can change a few rocks into some multi-grain bread, sort himself out. Does he ever do it? He doesn't. Why? Because he trusts his life to his father. No matter what he's going through, he lives on God's terms, not his own. He never grumbles, he never sins. In trial, he trusts that his heavenly father, in his goodness, knows exactly what's best for him. But Jesus isn't just a good example for us to follow. He's not just a good man who did good things. He is the God-man who did the ultimate thing when he had a similar wilderness experience on the cross. This time, forsaken by his father, just like that little boy in Japan, left alone, abandoned by his dad. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He is punished for our grumbling, for our sin. Why? Because long ago, long ago, God promised to take his people to the promised land in heaven and Jesus is the bridge that God provides to take us there because God is faithful. He is faithful to that promise. In our sin, it's true, we trample across his perfect body. Our sinful footprints stain his perfect body. He is crushed so that we can walk into the promised land to be with our Father forever. So that leaves us with a question. How do we respond to this? Should always be our question. 
So how do we respond? The first thing to say is that if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, if you've been trusting in other things other than him, today, right now, is the time that you can trust in him, that he is the only bridge into eternity. And we're going to be hanging around here up the front and I would love to pray with you or talk with you about it or that'd be fantastic. But what about us Christian pilgrims, those of us who are on this walk already? Well, it's interesting to note that the New Testament often looks back on this wilderness experience, paints it in not a really good light. The Apostle Paul's often saying, don't be like that. This is an example of what not to do. Don't do that. Don't respond to your situation by grumbling against God. So how should we... How should we respond? There's a careful distinction to be made here between grumbling in an unbelieving way and lamenting and questioning God and wrestling with him through problems in life in a faithful way. There's a difference between a righteous response to a situation in life and an unrighteous response to a situation in life. The Psalms are full of personal laments. People that are in situation in life and they're crying out to God, what is happening here? The Psalms present people who are broken, yes. People who are lamenting. But they draw God into their situation. They trust his goodness rather than push him away like grumbling does. See, grumbling declares that God is not sufficiently good and not faithful, and it charges him with wrongdoing, whereas righteous lamenting accepts God as good and faithful to us, and it draws him in. draws him into our situation to converse with us and to love us through that, to rely on him. And in that, because we trust that he knows what's best for us. So this week, for us, why don't we bring our worries before God, trusting that he is faithful through all situations in life, that he is present with us and that he is concerned for us and in all the dilemmas of life, can I just encourage you to never forget the cross. The greatest act of love in human history that God ever did, don't forget it. Not like the Israelites did, forgetting God's faithfulness. What he... Don't forget the cross. We look back at that, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the victory there, and that helps us to move forward in hope because we know that our God is faithful because of what Jesus did and we know that he loves us. I'll leave it there. How about we come before our Lord in prayer? Our great and wonderful Father in heaven, we do uh, acknowledge that life uh, can be tough and it may, look, may not look like uh, how we had envisioned, or in, it may look different, maybe struggling through something. But Father, we just um, trust that you are good. We think about the Lord Jesus, the person and the work, came into human history, lived a perfect life, the life we never could, died in our place for our sin, because you are faithful to your promises. So we look back to that, take encouragement from it, in order to move forward. We love you, Father. Amen. Amen.